Tim Eccles and Donnell Baird are two very different people. Tim is a religious conservative from Georgia. He's been active in Republican politics and evangelical organizing for decades. His passion for the environment is deeply rooted in his faith. I'm an evangelical Christian, and I, and I believe that, you know, God gave Adam and Eve a responsibility to care for the garden, subsequently the whole earth. Caring for it, you know, it, it means tending it and nurturing it and, and making sure that you're not abusing it. Donnell is a former progressive organizer. His obsession with the environment is rooted in his own experience of energy poverty. He grew up in a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn without heat, and his family actually had to heat their home using an oven. Of course, that releases all kinds of carbon monoxide. All that to say, like, very early on, I was exposed to the relationship between energy and buildings and actually health. Um, And as I got older and went to college, you could kind of see that environmental justice and environmental racism is a structural issue. Um, It wasn't just my individual family, but millions and unfortunately billions of people around the world who struggle with these kinds of issues. Tim grew up with automobiles at the center of his life. His family owned a car auction when he was a kid. So I've always loved cars. I worked at the car auction starting at 11 years old, selling peanuts to the car dealers. And then uh, as I got older, I, I started a car detail shop there and uh, obviously just continued on with my interest in cars after college, worked for a Ford dealership. Donnell grew up with poverty and activism at the center of his life. He worked as an organizer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. 30% of adults in the neighborhood are incarcerated. They enter the juvenile justice system for 17 blocks throughout this neighborhood. A million dollars per year is spent per block just to incarcerate people from that block. And I was a community organizer there for three years, and we were knocking on doors, talking to Uh, the people who live there about how to fix the neighborhood. But they do have one really big thing in common. They're both on a mission to electrify the world with clean energy and do it in their own unique way. So I drive a 2017 Chevrolet Volt. So, I mean, in our family, we've had, uh, you know, two electric cars in our family at the same time. I have seven children, so, uh, you know, we have a lot of people driving cars. Tim is a commissioner at the Georgia Public Service Commission, and he's spreading the gospel of clean energy and electric cars to his fellow Republicans in the South. What I want to do is to help them see why this is a good idea and how this technology, fractionally lowering everybody's power bill, bringing, you know, new opportunity to Atlanta in Georgia, and also using a Georgia-grown fuel, right? How patriotic is that? I mean, that's what we ought to be doing. Donnell is focused on cleaning up buildings, mostly for people of color who are more likely to live in unhealthy housing that's expensive to heat. What we need to do now is we we need to move buildings off of fossil fuels entirely. He's the CEO of a company called Block Power, which is electrifying multifamily apartments like the one he grew up in and then powering them with renewable energy. And so we have the opportunity to have these buildings be run off of 100% clean energy. And so that's what we need to do. So all the buildings in New York need to be upgraded. And same as the case, Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Baltimore, you know, Phoenix, Oakland, everywhere. 
both Tim and Danelle are trying to prove to the world that we can use the technologies that exist today to cut most of our emissions that we're making from our outdated, dirty energy system. We've made an extraordinary amount of progress over the last decade in terms of cleaning up our electricity system. And that's thanks to evangelists like Tim and entrepreneurs like Donnell. But experts tell us that we need to be moving even faster and that we should be aiming to clean up our entire electricity system within the next 15 years. Do you think we can do that, Catherine? I sure as hell hope so. This is a matter of degrees. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And together, we're telling stories for the climate curious. When it comes to talking about climate change, we often get deep into the weeds quickly and end up throwing a lot of numbers around. And these numbers can feel really disconnected from our lives. Two degrees, 415 parts per million, 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide. These are all bad numbers, by the way. Right. And today we've got one number we really want to focus on, and that number is 2035. It's a date. It's actually a deadline. It could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how fast we're able to move. I know the bad. 2035 is a point of no return for the climate, according to scientists. If we can't drastically lower heat-trapping gases by then, we're looking at catastrophic scenarios. But it's also a date that carries a lot of hope and opportunity. If we can make progress by 2035, then we can actually make a lot of changes to our energy system and really our entire economy. And you might have heard this number, 2035, recently. Here's Joe Biden in a speech he made in July. We also know that transforming the American electrical sector to produce power without producing carbon pollution and electrifying an increased share of our economy will be the greatest spurring of job creation and economic competitiveness in the 21st century. That's why we're going to achieve a carbon pollution-free electric sector by the year 2035. We need to get to work on it right away. I could just, like, cry listening to him say those things, to be honest. Like, oh, my God, it's so exciting. <laughs> I also like how he says 2035. He, like, really gives yeah, it a Yeah, it was nice... very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> well, Leah, I know this is something that you've written a lot about. So what exactly is Joe Biden proposing here? I mean, what's the transformation that he is putting into words? It's hard to describe how exciting this is. Uh, There is no state in the country that is pledging to clean up its electricity system by 2035. So what Vice President Joe Biden is saying is that he wants to do for the entire country what states are trying to do just for themselves for, you know, 2040 or 2045. He wants our entire electricity system to be clean, 100% clean by the year 2035. That is so much faster than we had been talking about. And it's actually in alignment with what science tells us we have to do. And I think Joe Biden really summarized the opportunity that we have before us very well. It's going to create at least one million jobs in construction, engineering and manufacturing in order to get it done. It's going to make places, the places where we work healthier, improving indoor air quality and water quality. It's going to save tens of billions of dollars in energy cost over time. 
That's all real. It is real. These aren't just numbers on a page. They're jobs. And we're going to hear directly from Donnell and Tim about the kinds of jobs that they're seeing right now in Georgia and New York as they focus on cleaning up our energy system. But first, I want to help people understand why 2035? Where did this date come from? Because it's actually a radical departure from what the clean energy community had been talking about. Up until last year, most people were planning for the electricity system to be cleaned up by 2050. And suddenly, that number has been pulled 15 years forward. I mean, that's a radical shift. So what happened? It's actually a pretty fascinating story. And to tell it, I needed to talk to the two people who were largely responsible for getting this 2035 idea into the mainstream. So I just want to take this back to the first time that the three of us met, which was largely in a tweet. Um, So... I was evaluating climate plans at the beginning of 2019 on the great website called Twitter.com. And one of the first plans that I evaluated was Inslee's electricity plan. Can you guys just remind me um, the grade that uh, I gave you (laughs) for your plan? I believe it was an A. I don't actually recall. That's Sam Ricketts. Didn't you ding us because of because you thought it was too aggressive and you gave us sort of a A minus B plus something like that? You pulled us down. And that's Bracken Hendricks, who has a better memory. I do recall getting on the phone with you the very first time and having you uh, grill us about the level of ambition and the level of achievability. Uh, But I think by the fact that we're on this podcast, we must have ground down your resistance and ultimately won you over. So uh, I take that as a measure of success. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I was maybe, I don't know, not the most polite uh, person in (laughs) hindsight. Leah, you were being like a really obnoxious professor, tough grader on these guys. And they're like shooting for the stars. And you're like, don't shoot for the stars. That's unreasonable. Yeah, I know. Sam and Bracken are now my friends. But they're also a couple of the most influential policy nerds out there who have been working on climate change and clean energy well before it was sort of the hot thing to do. They were both instrumental figures in crafting the climate policy for Washington state governor and former presidential candidate Jay Inslee. You might remember Inslee from early in the Democratic primary. This is our moment to put the greatest threat to our existence, to our economy, to our health at the very top of the nation's agenda. This is our moment to reinvent this was such a big deal. He and his campaign put together this incredibly comprehensive climate policy, and they were laser focused on moving climate solutions forward like no other campaign from this primary or any primary in history. We are the first generation to feel the sting of climate change, and we are the last generation that can do something about it. Yeah, they came up with 200 pages of climate plans. And Inslee has been working on this issue for a long time. Bracken actually co-wrote a book with him on climate solutions way back in 2007. The plans that they came up with during the primary really built on that early work. 
Those 200 pages were truly a masterful document covering almost every part of our economy. When we were putting together this policy about getting to 100% clean electricity, we had this wonderful charge that we've been given by Governor Inslee, which was to be as ambitious as the science demands, but be ready to actually do it on day one. Like, push the level of ambition to the limit, but don't strain credulity and don't cross that boundary. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how you would get to 100% clean energy. And we wanted to have a plan that would look really seriously at a 10-year mobilization and really push. We looked really hard at the data, we looked really hard at the technology, and we felt like this is doable, and this is as far as we can credibly get in 10 years. And we're, we're gratified now people are really running with this uh, 100% clean energy by 2035 standard. Unfortunately, Inslee dropped out of the race pretty early on, but his singular focus on climate change transformed the primary. Suddenly, it was a race to the top where everybody was trying to have the boldest climate plan. Inslee clearly made an impact on the race. I asked Sam and Bracken about what that was like. So the campaign failed. Obviously, Jainsley's not becoming president, and uh, he dropped out pretty early. But then this kind of weird thing started to happen where first Elizabeth Warren adopted his plans, and then at the very end of the race, suddenly Joe Biden has adopted his plan. So what did you think about that? Do you feel like the campaign was a success? I mean, is this an example of sort of failure actually being success? When Vice President Biden released his Build Back Better economic recovery agenda, which so centrally placed clean energy investment in the center of it and included this 2035 electricity decarbonization schedule. I mean, we were thrilled. We were thrilled with that and the entirety of the agenda, but just an enormous credit to the movement that has galvanized a real meaningful change as to what climate solutions are in the U.S. political infrastructure. You guys don't have big egos, and it's kind of hilarious. You refuse to take any credit for this fantastic thing that you did. It is hilarious. But, like, you know, you're climate people. You've been both working on this for well over a decade. You've been trying to chip away at the carbon-intensive system, and... It hasn't been easy. And, you know, has this been one of those moments where you feel like, yeah, I made a difference? Yes. <laughs> if you tell me I've made a difference, Leah, I'll believe you. So the political pressure worked. It did. And today Biden has the most comprehensive climate plan of any candidate for president in U.S. history. We're talking about $2 trillion in the first four years of the administration. That's 20% of the federal budget. He's pledged to have 40% of investments go to disadvantaged communities, which is exactly what environmental justice groups have been pushing for. And he has pulled up that electricity target to 2035, which is faster than any state in this entire country. That is a 15-year acceleration from the 2050 target that we had previously been talking about. Okay, Leah, so that's the story behind the political momentum that gets us to 2035, taking hold as a target. But I'm curious about the underlying trends. I mean, clearly, Inslee said this has to be rigorous. So if this accelerated date is possible, what changed in terms of technology and cost? That's a great question. Let's dig a little bit deeper into why this is doable. And to do that, 
we've got to get a little more technical. Are you taking us to Wonkland? Yes, Catherine, we're going on a great adventure to <laughs> Wonkland. But it's really not that bad there, I promise. It's kind of my favorite place to hang out. And we've got two great guides to help us get through Wonkland. Both of them are highly respected energy experts, but neither of them started out in energy. The first expert is Sonia Agarwal. She is the vice president at Energy Innovation, a nonpartisan clean energy research group. And they create reports that people like Bracken and Sam turn into policy proposals. In 2005, Sonia was studying outer space. I was working actually in astronomy research in South America and working at an observatory in Chile. Sonia found herself in this beautiful mountain observatory studying a binary star system that might become a supernova in something like 10,000 years. And she looked around and thought, hmm, maybe I should be studying something with a little bit more immediate impact. I was having a lot of fun watching these dynamic curves coming out of this star, but really the whole time thinking about how much I care about this planet and work that might make a much larger scale difference in my lifetime on this particular rock in the solar system. So she switched which planet she was interested in, and she started to focus on energy. She earned her master's at Stanford University, focusing on engineering, and she started to work on climate. This was in the mid-2000s, and that's when a lot of people started to notice major changes in renewable energy. She noticed them too. So... That took me to looking at solar and wind in more depth. And at that time, really, they were niche technologies that were not really at scale yet. But it certainly seemed like the curves of cost declines that were already emerging in these technologies were really impressive. Doing some calculations about learning rates and the way that technology tends to evolve as it gets deployed gave me a lot of hope for the potential future of these technologies. Sonia's talking about something here that may be familiar to people, the idea of learning curves, right? We know them from school when we're learning a new skill or language, and with technology, the more you make of something, the cheaper that something gets. That's right. And it's played out in pretty miraculous ways. Take, for example, computing. Every two years, the capability of microchips doubles and the costs are falling. So when we made a transistor back in the 1960s, it would have cost about $8 to make. And today, that same transistor costs a fraction of a cent. That's why we can all have supercomputers in our pockets. And it turns out that the same thing has been happening for wind and solar. In solar, every doubling of manufacturing capacity brings a roughly 20% drop in costs. And it sounds like Sonia has a front row seat to how this is playing out. Yes. As Europe put an emphasis on renewables, manufacturing and installations exploded. In America, the Obama administration invested $90 billion into clean energy at the turn of the last decade. In the first half of 2020, the U.S. and Europe both got more electricity from renewable energy than coal. 
The costs of wind power have also dropped by 70% since 2009, and the costs of solar have fallen even more by about 90%. Electricity from the sun and the wind are now cheaper than anything else in many parts of the world. You know, I think it was easy to sort of ignore renewable energy when it was under 1% of the total uh, electricity generation, for example. But now that it's really grown and we're seeing higher shares, I think utilities can no longer ignore these technologies. And the writing is on the wall about the cost savings that they can provide. And this brings us to Sonia's most recent work. She and a couple of colleagues watched this play out and they started to ask themselves, can we transition the grid much faster than we previously thought? It's a great question. And what exactly did they find? Well, she and her team spent months crunching the data, running different simulations and writing an analysis of what is possible by 2035. What we said was... Can we run the models to try to understand how quickly can we actually get to a very high share of zero carbon electricity? Because a lot of people were talking about trying to get to net zero by 2050 or um, 80 percent by 2050. And in June this year, they came to a pretty stark conclusion By 2035, the U.S. can reliably and cost-effectively hit 90% clean energy. In fact, it would even save money. And it was really amazing, actually, to find that uh, we could come up with some pretty robust scenarios that dependably deliver electricity to customers in every hour um, at very high shares in the very near term. So when we're thinking about what our electricity grid would look like in 2035, what are the big takeaways? What would our grid be like? Would it be cheaper? Would it be cleaner? How can we think about what an electricity grid could look like in 2035? Well, from the individual's perspective, it won't look much different, except for that the air will be cleaner, the water will be cleaner, um, less kids with asthma attacks due to air pollution from power plants. But the electricity that you receive in your house or in your business would look just the same. So when you flip on the light switch, there the light would be. The way that the physical grid would look would be just a lot more wind and solar power plants, a lot more energy storage deployed. And then also we would keep around our existing hydro and nuclear power plants to get up to that 90% zero carbon share. Is it doable? I mean, how much faster do we need to be moving in order to hit that 90% target or even uh, 100% target? Yes, it's doable. That's one of the most exciting findings of the 2035 report. We're not talking about a 10 times greater rate of deployment of solar and wind or something, which sounds really hard. We're actually talking about just doubling the historical best rate of solar and wind deployment in this country each year in the 2020s and then tripling it for those five years in the 2030s. So that is totally doable. Wow. I have to say, Leah, this is one of the more energizing pieces of information I've heard in a while. 
And I guess it leaves me with another question, which is what about that last 10%? If Biden is calling for 100% zero carbon energy by 2035, is there a big difference between the 90 that Sonia finds is possible and the 100 that we're aiming for? Ah, the 10% problem, something we talk about very frequently in Wonkland. We've really made it, Catherine. Um, For that, we're going to need to turn to another technical expert, Dr. Jesse Jenkins. He is a professor at Princeton University and a widely cited expert on cleaning up our energy system. I run the Zero Lab, which is a research group focused on uh, providing decision support and insights to guide transitions to net zero energy systems. That's cool. I like your lab name. Very nice. Thanks. It stands for Zero Carbon Energy Systems Research and Optimization Lab. Got to get an acronym out of it. <laughs> like Sonia, Jesse was on a completely different career path before finding climate change. Um, I was a computer science uh, major in the mid-2000s, you know, thinking about a potential future career in software widgets and the like, um, social media, whatever else might have come. And then, as an undergraduate, he took a class on the environmental impact of energy systems. And he realized that he wanted to apply his analytical skills to something much bigger. And so I sort of took a U-turn at that point and uh, really devoted my further studies to trying to understand energy systems and opportunities for emissions reductions at that point in the transportation sector. Jesse went on to get his PhD in engineering systems at MIT. And like Sonia, he's been closely tracking and modeling clean energy technologies over the last decade and a half. His research has also shown that we can get very high levels of renewable energy quickly and cost effectively. But he also says that getting that last 10% of zero carbon electricity will be more of a challenge. So what happens when it's, um, you know, winter month, uh, when it's cloudy and and the sun is low in the the latitude uh, in the sky and it's... um, you know, high pressure front that is cold and and the wind dies for seven to 10 days in a row. So the more we depend on electricity to heat and cool our our building spaces, um, you know, and to run industrial processes as well, uh, the more important it is that we can weather those kinds of events, what um, the Germans lovingly call the Dunkelflaute or um, dark doldrums periods. So long periods of time when it's both uh, dark, little solar output and where the wind has died out. Okay, the dunkle flout or whatever you just said. Yeah, you gotta, well, you got to have a compound word for everything, right, in German. So. And to get through those periods, we need what I call clean, firm, or firm, low-carbon technologies. That is a, a big challenge for a decarbonized electricity system that relies heavily on wind and solar. So talk to us, Leah, about what kind of clean, firm technologies we're talking about. Well, there are a couple of different options to deal with these challenges. One is transmission lines. If we have one part of the area that has a lot of wind on a given day and another part that doesn't, we can connect those two regions with transmission lines and share those resources over these larger geographic spaces. And of course, we can use storage technologies. We can store that extra energy, and then in the evening when the sun has gone down, we can use it, drawing off of these batteries and other storage technologies. And there are other ideas that people are talking about, new technologies like flexible or small modular nuclear reactors that some people are quite excited about. 
And Jesse believes that, like wind and solar, we could see similar cost declines through learning for these other technologies. You know, basically what we need is a technology that has its own, you know, energy storage. So it's basically using a fuel of some sort. Um, And that's what we use fossil fuels for today. And, you know, they play that role well from a reliability and economic perspective, but of course have significant environmental costs and drive climate change. And so what we need are firm resources that are clean as opposed to fossil, you know, emitting firm resources like coal and gas plants. And so our option set there is, you know, frankly, not as mature and not as good as, you know, from a cost perspective as wind and solar. Um, And it includes, you know, geothermal energy, which today is, you know, fairly geographically specific and constrained to small scale, you know, in, in a small total scale in specific locations where we have the right geology to do geothermal. The um, largest source of clean, firm energy we have today is nuclear power, and our existing nuclear fleet is certainly an important foundation for making further progress uh, to decarbonize the electricity grid. But you know, we are not going to. We're going to be seeing at best a you know small reduction in capacity, and at worst, significant retirement in our existing nuclear fleet. So, if nuclear is going to play a big role, we really need to see a dramatic uh, shift in the way we go about building nuclear power plants that can make them much more economic to build. And that could be either making them much smaller and more modular and more manufactured in a kind of shipyard or factory type setting, or it can mean approaching the construction process in a very different way that focuses less on the kind of whiz-bang new nuclear technology and more on how do we just do big civil works projects um, required uh, you know, in a nuclear project in a much more cost-effective way in the U.S. than we've been able to do over the last few decades. The other options um, involve burning fuels in combustion turbines uh, like we do for natural gas plants today. We can either keep burning natural gas and then capture the carbon emissions um, and sequester the emissions permanently underground in uh, geologic formations. So that's known as carbon capture and sequestration. Or we can burn a zero carbon fuel um, like hydrogen or ammonia Uh, And then there's no direct CO2 emissions from that combustion, but we need to find a way to produce that fuel at scale without driving emissions. So yeah, if we can set the right, if we can spend the next decade basically making the full suite of technologies we need to decarbonize uh, as cheap as we've made wind and solar and batteries over the last decade, um, then we're going to be well positioned to get to net zero uh, cost effectively. And, and there's no reason to expect that that, w- that kind of cost reduction would not happen with concerted po- policy support. So both Sonia and Jesse are saying we have the tools now to get to a zero carbon electricity grid pretty quickly. And It sounds like the tools to finish that job are on the horizon. They're not someday, maybe, if we're lucky. So what about the other pieces of this, Leah? What about electrifying cars, water heaters, all the things today that run on fossil fuels? Well, that's why I'm so focused on electricity, because this is the fastest way that we can eliminate emissions from other parts of our economy. And it's also the cheapest. But it's going to require historic investments. Jesse and I talked about what that would need to look like. The benefit of cleaning up the electricity sector is that it allows us to clean up other parts of the economy, transportation, buildings, and even some parts of heavy industry. How much more electricity do we need when we start to electrify these other sectors? We need a lot more electricity. And so that's where 
electricity starts to look like a linchpin in any successful transition to a net zero emissions economy. We want to get to net zero emissions sometime in the power sector between 2035 and 2045, if we're trying to get to net zero economy-wide by 2050. That alone would eliminate a quarter of current U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. But the other challenge is that we need to substantially expand electricity to help decarbonize the other three quarters of emissions. And so even if we get to 100% clean electricity by 2035, then we almost need to double all that electricity again by 2050 over the next decade uh, to help fuel the displacement of fossil fuels in other sectors. On the other side, that means that there'll be a lot of work in this industry for a long time building stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a major increase in energy-related employment um, within the electricity sector, building wind and solar and transmission lines in particular. We could see an annual average of about 2 to 3 million energy-related jobs uh, in the first decade of this transition, or a net increase of about a million energy-related jobs. And that's primarily in the wind and solar sectors and supportive um, you know, supply chains, including transmission build-out and manufacturing of um, wind turbines and solar panel components. And then there'll be even more jobs, of course, in cleaning up the transportation sector and the building sector. That's right, in building electric vehicles and batteries um, and heat pumps. Um, you know, that's a major expansion. It you know, could be that we end up importing a lot of that from overseas or with the right focused policies, uh, we could be you know, insourcing rather than outsourcing a lot of that uh, manufacturing and you know, could be producing a lot of those components in the United States as well. I love those comments that Jesse makes at the end, because for so long, we've heard this framing about how much the transition will cost and how much we're going to have to give up. But what we know is that this has gotten dramatically cheaper as we've been unpacking. And whatever it does cost going forward is actually an investment. As Jesse said, we're talking about the creation of millions of jobs and not just jobs, but meaningful jobs helping to build a livable future. And that's exactly what we heard in Biden's comments at the top of the show. And this makes me so hopeful because here are the facts. We have the technology we need. We know how to do it. It will actually save customers money and it'll create millions of good paying jobs along the way. Cleaning up our electricity system is so exciting. I call it the first linchpin because if we can clean up our electricity system by 2035, what that will allow us to do is clean up our transportation system through electric vehicles, our buildings through, you know, using things like induction stoves and heat pumps rather than fossil gas, and even maybe half of heavy industry. And when we add up the clean electricity system with the newly electrified parts of our economy, We're talking about something like 70 to 80 percent of our emissions being eliminated with this plan. So we know this clean energy transition is happening now. It's not some far off someday, maybe sort of thing. Exactly. And that's where Southern EV enthusiast Tim Eccles and green building Brooklynite Donnell Baird come into our picture. These are the kind of people who are going to take that 2035 electricity goal and use it to catalyze climate progress in the transportation and building sectors. As we heard, Tim is a huge fan of electric vehicles. As a public service commissioner for the state of Georgia, he's been pushing for incentives and targets to make clean cars more accessible. And when I talked to Tim, he was so enthusiastic about ride-sharing companies leading the way on this. 
uh, that he actually became a Lyft driver himself for a short period. I really think that rideshare companies using electric vehicles are the best marketing campaign that we can have out there because they're giving seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve rides a day. And a lot of the folks getting in these cars, and I've talked to the drivers, and I've actually went and, and experienced it myself. I said, you know what? I'm going to rent one of these Lyft cars. I'm going to see how people react. And so for two different weekends, I rented one of these bolts, and I became a Lyft driver in order to experience this. You know, as a Georgia resident and homegrown Atlanta and myself, I would be very delighted to have Tim pick me up. I'd probably make him drive me around longer so that we could, you know, just kind of chat in detail in real time about clean cars. Yeah, and that was his goal, to unlock those kinds of conversations with people who just got into his car for a ride, and it totally worked. Uh, and so their comments were all good. Wow, this is a quiet car. This is a, a clean car. There's a lot of room in the back seat of this car. I love this. I could see myself in it. I learned that back when I worked for a car dealership when I was 22 years old. There, there's no substitute for giving a test drive, right? I mean, you can't just sit at your desk and talk about how cool this, you know, Ford is or this Chevy is or whatever. No, you've got to get in the car and experience it. So imagine every city having 50, 100, 200, 1,000 electric cars running around giving rides. I love this. I just love the idea of Tim being a Lyft driver because he just wants to turn a few more people onto electric vehicles. He's like such an evangelist in every sense of the word. <laughs> I love it. And the cool thing is that it's not just, you know, the people that Tim will just by chance pick up who are getting excited about electric vehicles. 40 million Americans are right now saying that they're going to consider an electric vehicle for their next car. And that's according to a survey from AAA. The thing that maybe not everybody knows is that battery range is way up and the cost of EVs have come so far down. I have an EV myself and I love it. It's way easier to drive than a gas-powered car. You rarely have to stop and charge it. Um, but overall, sales in the U.S. of EVs are flat and they were even before the pandemic. And it's pretty clear that consumers would be buying these cars in much greater numbers if they had better access to them, if they were more comfortable with charging availability. And, you know, EVs were actually marketed to people when they went to dealerships and tried to think about what kind of car they wanted to buy. I totally feel that because I don't have an EV. And in part, that's because I live in a condo and there's no charging infrastructure. So this actually really takes me back, Leah, to our first episode on structural change versus personal action. Like we're just really challenged on personal action here without the right infrastructure surrounding us. It's all structural, Catherine. It's structural all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a few years ago, EVs were on track to explode in your home state of Georgia, where Tim also lives. And that was because of a tax credit that was created in 1998, thanks to three Georgia Republicans who wanted to boost Prius sales. They were interested in fuel savings and reducing U.S. dependence on foreign oil. When you added the federal tax credit of 7500 to the state tax credit of 5000 
it was essentially a free car. And once people figured that out, uh, we were the number one market for the Nissan Leaf in America. What it did do was catalyze a massive growth in EVs in the state. And it stuck around until Republicans slashed it. I totally remember this. I remember Nissan Leafs were just popping up all over the city and Atlanta. And also EV infrastructure was popping up, like at my favorite dive bar, Manuel's Tavern. And that was a few years ago. And then all of a sudden, it just felt like it came to a screeching halt. Yeah, the tax credit went away in 2015, and the bottom fell out of the EV market in Georgia. Yeah, it really didn't have an impact on Tesla. As you look at Tesla sales and leases, they were they were pretty flat. But those Nissan Leafs, it killed the market for the Nissan Leaf. Clearly, the credit was the catalyst for Georgia's EV revolution while it lasted. And not only was that tax credit removed, wasn't there a fee put in place? Can you explain that to us? It was a double whammy, right? We were doing a massive transportation omnibus bill for road bridges, uh, a, a lot of improvements. And I think our legislators said, wow, what are we doing giving away this money for these tax credits? And oh, by the way, these cars aren't paying their fair share. And so instead of attaching what would have been an appropriate fee, maybe $60, $70, they said, well, eh, it's probably about $100. let us just round it up to 200 And it's a $200 f- fee, inflation adjusted. So I think I paid 213 on mine this year. So every year you've got to pay $200 plus because you own an EV in Georgia. Yeah, just to get the, just to get the tag. That's right. So... Georgians are right now being punished for owning electric vehicles, and Tim has been on a mission ever since to bring back the EV tax credit and break down some of the barriers to electric vehicle adoption in Georgia. And he's not just doing this out of pure kindness. He wants to create a strong market so other companies can set up shop in Georgia, and he feels like this is a way to speak to his fellow Republicans about climate action. After that point, I think we realized, wait a second, we've got to change our messaging on these cars. We've got to start talking about technology. We've got to start talking about economic development. We can't leave it to our Democratic colleagues to message this out or we'll never get this credit back. So let's talk about how all autonomous cars are going to be electric and how we want to attract companies like Tesla and anybody that's making autonomous cars or any autonomous car technology. Uh, We want to attract them to the Atlanta area. Therefore, we need to make sure that the climate is right for electric vehicles. And that means, you know, reinstating some kind of tax credit. It's hard to say if Tim's efforts are going to be successful, if he'll manage to get that Georgia EV market to bounce back anytime soon. But there have been some promising signs of shifting attitudes towards clean electricity in the state. As a public service commissioner, Tim has overseen plans for thousands of megawatts of solar in Georgia and an expansion of rooftop solar access for customers. And I think people are sometimes surprised that these projects happen in southern states. I mean, I can't tell you how often people in the climate space are like, you're from Georgia? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of support for clean energy, even in red states. And Tim knows that we can keep that happening. 
But selling climate change to conservatives is a lot like selling a car. You've got to know your buyer and pick your words carefully. I think my interest in the climate really comes more from my faith as opposed to anything else. Uh, you know, I, I tell my Democratic friends all the time, you know, to be careful and, you know, and what they're asking their Republican friends to say. Right. I know rhetoric is really important in this political climate. People want you to say the words like somehow that's magical or something. Um, but I am I'm very cautious in the words that I that I use because I know that people will get a soundbite of it or they'll take that clip and they will use it against me. So Tim rarely uses the phrase climate change when he's pitching his ideas to other Republicans. But here's the thing. Poll after poll shows conservatives love the clean energy technologies that are really driving our energy transition. Yeah. And I think that's because building all this clean infrastructure creates a lot of local jobs and tax revenue for cities and states. And rooftop solar actually allows people to have more control over their energy or even full energy autonomy. And we actually saw this also in the state of Georgia some years back when the Green Tea Party and the Sierra Club ended up working together to make solar policy better for the state. Right. And this is the reason why you hear Biden framing this as an economic opportunity focused around jobs. And when I talked to Donnell, a former progressive organizer, he told me something kind of funny about his own journey. Even though I was a socialist when I was 19 back in college at Duke, like I am now, I guess, a hyper capitalist, I guess. So climate change is transforming all kinds of people. Tim is out there signing up to be a Lyft driver on the weekends. And Donnell is tapping his organizing roots to grow his Brooklyn-based startup company, Block Power. I am a tech entrepreneur. I've raised millions of dollars of Silicon Valley venture capital to try and build a giant for-profit company where one of the major outcomes is a reduction of greenhouse gases. Block Power is working to upgrade all kinds of buildings, churches, community centers, apartment buildings. And through his company, Donnell installs new insulation, electric heat pumps, and even on-site solar. Some projects are bringing in 50% cuts in energy bills and 70% drops in emissions. Yeah, so we're super focused on low-income and moderate-income buildings, there's 5 million medium-sized buildings throughout the country. They're not single-family homes. They're not skyscrapers in Manhattan and New York City. They are schools, small businesses, houses of worship, community centers, gyms, right? These are medium-sized buildings that are bigger than a single-family home. There's 5 million of them. We think they represent about 7 to 13% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, depending on which data set you analyze. And they waste about $100 billion per year on fossil fuels. And so we focus on those buildings. And Donnell is doing this to make money and create jobs, sure. 
but he's also doing it to address climate change and for much more personal reasons. It is important to me because I, I, I am black. I know this is a podcast, but I, I am a black American male. And we, we have really high rates of unemployment. And um, that creates a lot of frustration and despair in the black community. And there's all other kinds of negative things that come out of that. You know, people need a purpose and people need to be connected to something larger than themselves. And, and there, there can be good purposeful work um, that's not exploitative, uh, it's not extractive, that, that, that helps to stabilize families and communities. And so that's what we want. If you go into the Bronx, we're working on a project there. The Bronx has the highest asthma rates in America. Um, they have thousands of buildings that burn oil for heat and hot water uh, year-round, 365 days a year. An oil truck pulls up to the apartment building, pumps oil into the boiler in the basement. You burn that oil to heat up hot water, which provides heat and hot water to the apartment building. It's incredibly bad for the environment, but it's also, I mean, you're burning oil in your basement and everyone's breathing that stuff in. And that is part of the reason why the Bronx has such high asthma rates. I'm so glad that Danelle made this point because it drives me freaking bananas when people in the climate space are like, we need to only focus on climate change. It is so confusing when we start talking about other things like, oh, I don't know, jobs and justice. Like, why would we talk about those things? And it's like, guys, we talk about those things, A, because we have an opportunity to multi-solve and B, because we can bring people to this topic and to this work for other reasons, right? The work can be common ground, solving for a lot of different needs and a lot of different concerns. Exactly. I am a huge fan of Donnell and his company because in addition to making these community and justice benefits, he's also pointing out that the work of climate progress is also about job creation. I started thinking about, could we create jobs for local families to green their buildings and to retrofit and renovate the buildings that they lived in, uh, like the ones I grew up in? Part of the reason that we should electrify buildings is we'll create, depending on who you talk to, somewhere between one and four million jobs electrifying buildings. I've been trying to electrify my home. And first of all, I've had literally a hole in my kitchen wall for four years. So I wouldn't say we are the best at uh, moving projects forward. But one thing I've noticed <laughs> is that when contractors come over and we say, oh, we want to get rid of gas, they say, well, why would you do that? Gas is so fantastic. Da, da, da. So it seems like it's hard to find the right contractor who actually wants to do building electrification and understands why you would want to do it. Is that kind of your experience too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to have to invent new kinds of construction companies and contractors across the country who understand building electrification and are passionate about it and uh, can execute and implement building electrification projects. And so, um, you know, contractors and construction companies get all kinds of like fees and payments uh, from the natural gas industry or the oil industry. Um, they get fees and payments from manufacturers of products that use natural gas and oil. And so, um, you know, in some ways they're economically and financially tied in with the fossil fuel industry, which is something that I think 
um, when we think about what needs to happen here, the fact that the construction industry, Leah, to your very good point, is, is incentivized or lean towards fossil fuels. We have so much to do and so little time to do it. And that's why Danelle has had this vision to start a company and try to clean up our building sector, which is crucial if we want to make any progress by 2035. We've got these like four crises, right? We have like Black Lives Matter and a civil rights crisis. We have the COVID-19 crisis. We have an economic crisis and, you know, the unemployment crisis that we have, which is headed towards Great Depression levels. And then we have our climate crisis, right? And electrification allows us to address all four crises at once. As we go building to building and remove them from fossil fuels, the buildings are healthier. They're less likely to spread COVID-19 through the air and ventilation systems. We're reducing greenhouse gases, We're creating jobs. And if we electrify buildings in communities of color and hire workers from communities of color, then we're addressing historical um, inequities in communities of color. And so building electrification is the way out, right? It is the way for our country to to dig ourselves out of this hole that we're in. And um, yeah, I look forward to working with you and with everybody else to, to get this done. It's crazy to listen back to that conversation because I actually recorded that with Donnell 10 days before Biden made his speech at the DNC, where he talked about the four crises and identified the exact same crises that Donnell did. So Donnell is either psychic or he has his finger on the pulse here. And building electrification really is a key solution to all these crises that we face. That is really wild that he basically scooped the Democratic National Convention. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think he just he lays it out so plainly that not only do we have climate solutions, but climate solutions are job solutions. Climate solutions are equity solutions. Climate solutions are economic solutions. And when we remember that we're either multi-solving or we're not solving at all, like, then it's just like, okay, let's get rolling. (laughs) You know, like what is there, literally what is there to lose? People like Danelle and Tim and Jesse and Sonia and Bracken and Sam, all these people make me so hopeful about what we can accomplish in the next 15 years, because 2035 is right around the corner. 2035, not just some random date. I hope the next time folks hear that date, they remember these stories and the stakes that we've laid out here. You know, cleaning up the electricity system is a huge linchpin. It's something that can catalyze our climate action across the entire economy. Well, holy hell, Leah, we have really covered a lot of ground. I feel thoroughly briefed on what did you say? 70 to 80% of the problem, how we solve it? Yeah. And that's why, you know, I'm really excited about the election. Like everybody else, I'm nervous, but I see that with this plan for 100% clean electricity by 2035, we're not just cleaning up our electricity sector, we're cleaning up our transportation sector, our buildings, and so much more. And it really just gives me a feeling like you know what? We could just solve this thing. 
This is A Matter of Degrees, co-hosted by me, Leah Stokes. And by me, Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Sydney Bartone, and Stephen Lacey produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and scored the show. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. A special thanks to the funders and supporters who made this show possible. The Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, UC Santa Barbara, and others. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or any other place you like to get your shows. And you can follow both of us and our production team on Twitter. You'll find our accounts in the show notes. Stay with us as we tell more stories for the climate curious. Bonhomme. Cheers!